Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Jews on Film podcast. Thank you for tuning in again to us. My name is Harry Adensasser. I am a Jew who loves movies. I was, uh, I'll slip this in right now, I was a film major in college. So that's a little bit of my background. And I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about, you know, a specifically Jewish movie that we are watching this week, Uncut Gems, a movie that I would say I didn't think of so much as a Jewish movie upon the first time I watched it. But, you know, revisiting it for this podcast was very Jewish. And I'm very excited to break that down with you. And uh, with me, as always, is Daniel. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself, Daniel? Sure, Harry. No problem. I'm Daniel Zana. I'm a filmmaker, video editor, and a Jew as well. And someone who likes to listen to podcasts and hear to talk Uncut Gems, like Harry said. Boy, what a movie. I yeah. remember seeing this movie in the theaters when, I guess, when it came out two years ago. I was seeing it at the, um, well, I'm based in Seattle. And so I saw it at the uh, Northgate Mall with some friends and um it was just very intense like the whole movie is just a adrenaline rush all the way through and it doesn't really calm down until the credits <laughs> at the end yeah and it starts out real like calm you know or not really we'll get into it in a second but i feel like it just like from the get-go the first thing you know it's just yeah intensity all the way through and there's lulls but yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to say, you know, you can call it, you know, adrenaline intensity. I would go so far as to say it's a stressful movie. It was yes. not an easy rewatch. I actually watched it a couple hours before rec we're recording tonight. And uh, yeah. I'm not sure if I've sort of come down from uh, the, the anxiety I've been feeling, you know, for the last couple hours since I watched it. It starts off high, like you said, and it never really lets up through, you know, the final moments. Oh, yeah. And you know, I feel like a lot of that is the story itself, but then there's so many other, you know, decisions that were made in the edit or in the sound design or the soundtrack where it's just like really swelling music and cutting, you know, when, um, you know, when Howard's like on the phone and he's clicking between line one and line two and line three and people are on the phone with him and it's just there's a lot going on at all times and there's very rarely a time when it's not like so claustrophobic or just there's not a lot of time to breathe in this movie. Um, I think the only time that there's a little bit of quiet is when Howard's like in the trunk of his car. Sure. Exactly right. Not only are we going to have a spoiler warning about the plot, we will have a Talmud warning that there will be Talmud discussed in this podcast. Exactly. Um, Harry, can you give us the IMDb synopsis for this film? Yeah, sure. So um, I'll just read what IMDb says. And uh, this is not a promotion for IMDb, although I use it almost every day and it's a great app. But um, I'll read. There's actually a couple of uh, plot synopses here. So I'll just read uh, one of them that I found. And it basically says, in New York City's chaotic and corrupt diamond market, the gemstone dealer and gambling addict Howard Ratner is owing money to almost everyone, including his brother-in-law, Arno. A serial adulterer, incorrigible gambler, and all-around con artist, Howard thinks he can finally get out of the tight spot when he gets his hands on a block of rare Ethiopian black opal, the means to clear his ever-rising debts. But the star Boston Celtics player, Kevin Garnett, has already taken a shine to the precious uncut gem. Can Ratner juggle his family, a pair of thuggish collectors, his work, and his master plan before things get nasty. And uh, that's where the synopsis ends, but I'll uh, answer that question with a spoiler. Not so much. I would say he doesn't manage to juggle it all appropriately. <laughs> yeah, it's a perpetual thrill ride, like we said. And um, 
Yeah, it's, uh, but I feel like one thing that is, you know, it's an interesting choice to cast Adam Sandler in this movie. Um, not the first time that I've seen Adam Sandler succeed in like a drama role. Like this reminded me a lot of parts of uh, Punch Drunk Love, which is directed by Paul no, Thomas Anderson. Anderson. Um, shout out to the 818 uh, for all the, all you Valley listeners. Um, yeah, but I feel like a lot of parts, the parts that reminded me this of, uh, the parts that reminded uh, me of punch drunk love was that in that movie as well, Adam Sandler plays Barry Egan. Who's kind of like this schlubby loser kind of guy. Who's also pursued at one point by thugs and, and it, by the mob or, you know, Valley mob, but still, um, and just the way that he reacts to it is not as brave as he is in this way, where he's like fighting these people in this movie and he doesn't back down. Um, but he brings like a unique perspective as a comedy person, people who know Adam Sandler as, you know, the water boy, happy Gilmore, all these other movies and all his comedy records and things like that. And to see him kind of like, um, twist expectations a little bit and play this sort of character is really interesting. Um, no, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely agree with you there. I think part of his persona, you know, that comedic soft persona is, someone you wouldn't necessarily take seriously for a number of reasons. Like not only as someone who you think is joking the whole time, but also someone who might not be able to stand up for himself. And I think that really informs his character where he seems like this sort of, you know, little guy, you know, outcast in society. who's always kind of defending himself, like fighting for, you know, what he feels like is right. And I definitely think the casting of Adam Sandler certainly informs how we feel about this character and why I think it becomes so difficult to not give him the sympathy that, you know, Adam Sandler generally evokes from an audience, but Howard Ratner, you know, in this film certainly does not. You know, part of the through line of the movie is that everything that happens to him is somewhat self-inflicted, I would say, if not mostly self-inflicted. There are like opportunities throughout the film where he makes a bad choice and has an opportunity for redemption and just doesn't take it and goes the other way and doubles down. And, you know, this is certainly a gambling movie before we even talk about it being a Jewish film. I would say that's one of the main through lines of, you know, his whole character. Something that I thought about as the film progresses and bad things keep happening to him is that it's sort of like Job in a sense where like the shit hits the fan so many times I lose count and he's just so optimistic that this is going to be the time that I'm going to win that bet or this is going to be the time that, you know, something good will happen to me. And he's very optimistic. It's only towards the end of the movie where he finally breaks down um, and, you know, he's got his nose plugged up with tissues and he's talking to his girlfriend Jules. Um, and uh, yeah, he just kind of breaks down at that point. But prior to that, he's just very optimistic that everything's kind of going to work out and he just keeps it going. You know, it's, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's very, no, no question about that. I, I mean, I love your comparison to Job. I, I read an interview actually that the Safdie brothers, the directors of the film were doing, and they were talking about this sort of Jewish tradition of, characters who have to learn through suffering and sort of mm -hmm. repeated suffering. And that's yeah. obviously <clears throat> that that's a huge part of the Job story. But, you know, a lot of these characters and the question of whether Howard really learns much, you know, by the end of the movie, I'm not sure if we'd agree that he really comes out of here a stronger character, you know, stronger morally and ethically, but he certainly is suffering you know, throughout the film. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some, so the movie starts out in uh, what, what we see is Ethiopia and there's a uh, someone being led out of the mines and two other miners kind of sneak in as they're bringing this wounded character out and they go in and they're chipping away at 
part of a um, part of a a wall, and from it comes out like a black opal stone, which we're told is incredibly rare, incredibly valuable. And you know they're looking at it, and they're and it's shiny and everything, and it starts out and we zoom, we kind of do this like hyper zoom going into the gem all the way through. And that's when the credits start. And then it sort of slowly morphs into uh, a colonoscopy reading from Howard Ratner. And we zoom out and we see Howard in a vulnerable state. You know, I'll revise my statement. I think Howard getting a colonoscopy and being in the trunk of the car are the only like two calm moments in the film. Everything Probably. else is just like really, but what's more Jewish than getting a colonoscopy, huh? Hey, no, a hundred percent. And I'll, I'll remind our listeners, it doesn't just sort of turn into him, you know, in the process of this colonoscopy, but you know, we go from inside the gem to I think inside his colon, right. Yeah. There's sort of this dramatic shot where they're kind of pulling back to a screen. That's, you know, all the way up inside there. So, uh, so yeah, so this movie is uh, not afraid to shy away from some certain graphic images. Yeah. And, you know, and then we're introduced to Howard's crazy world. You know, he's running around calling on calling people on a cell phone and he gets in and, and, you know, we're introduced to his coworkers um, and is, so Howard is a married man. He's married to a, a, a woman named Dina, who's played by Adina Menzel. And he also works with a woman named Jules. Um, and Jules is also his um, girlfriend on the side, let's say. And so he has a separate apartment in New York City. Played by Jules is played by Julia Fox. I thought it was interesting that Howard deals in Jules, but he also is dating Jules. You know, I don't know. I mean, Maybe it's a bit of a stretch, but no, you know what? It feels like a not so subtle way of saying he's sort of married to his work in a certain way. Ah, you know? very good. Yeah, I like that. Um, because obviously, you know, the same way that this profession is sort of, you know, the, the cause for the crumbling of his marriage of his marriage, which is sort of a big theme. He's sort of in this place where he's moved into his own apartment. He's in the process of getting divorced from his wife, but they haven't really spoken to the kids about it. So he's sort of in that, you know, intermittent space and. You know, it's certainly both the jewels and, you know, Julia herself are pulling him away to a certain extent. Nice. Yeah, I like that. And then after dealing with a couple customers, you know, we we meet Damani, um, who's played by Lakeith Stanfield. Um, and Damani is sort of a questionable character to Howard in terms of bringing in new business like other uh, folks, you know, in the hip hop uh, world, as well as athletes, pro athletes like Kevin Garnett, who we'll see later in the film. But, you know, I think it's it's interesting that the way that the fish or there's a fish that's delivered to Howard's door while he right. while Kevin Garnett is is uh, visiting later on. And the fish inside the fish is where this black opal, we find out that Howard has acquired this black opal uh, gem and it comes in through a fish, which I think is very much like Jonah in a way, you know, you know like, what? Yeah. You know, there's that, even, actually, there's even like an old, I feel like there's an old, uh, I, I was, if you didn't say it, I was about to, it just came to mind as you were explaining that, yeah. that there is, there's a famous story in the, in the Talmud where it talks about this character who was, you know, very, there was this character that was told he was this sort of evil man. And he was told that all of his money would be given to this, you know, poor and righteous Jew someday. And he was so terrified that his money would be liquidated that he decides he's going to invest in this, you know, turn, convert all of his money into this one gem, this huge gem, you know, similar to the black opal at the center of the story. And he would, I think, hide it in his hat maybe, or just keep it in his pocket. And so that he would never lose it. And the story goes that one day that gem is, you know, 
I think a strong gust of wind comes, it flies off of his hat, off of his, you know, out of his pocket and lands in the ocean. And it's swallowed by a fish, which is incredible because I really think that this is, you know, sort of a clear reference to that. Because what happens is, you know, the poor man buys that fish, you know, right before, right before Chavez. It's this big thing. He gets the last fish in the market. And when he opens it up, he's rewarded by finding this huge jewel, you know, sort of in the center of the fish. And just so visually similar to what happens, you know, with Howard here. So I really think that's a, a, an intentional reference by the Safdie brothers. Nice. Yeah. I'm going to revise my statement and say it's not Jonah. It's more likely the exact story from the Talmud. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Awesome. And before we get like too into it, I know that usually we talk about, you know, how Jewish this film is from a uh, behind the scenes and in front of the camera perspective. So like we mentioned, Adam Sandler, a Jew, we also have the Safdie brothers who are Jewish, you know, they're Sephardic Jews, I believe. And, yes, um, and so we also have cameos by like Judd Hirsch, who, who plays Adam Sandler's father-in-law. We have uh, the fat Jewish shows up in a little, in a scene. I looked up some of the other folks. They did not appear to be members of the tribe, but I could be wrong. But it's just very interesting that there's a distinction drawn. Uh, there's another character, Eric Bogosian, who plays Arno, which is um, Howard's brother-in-law. He's, very much not Jewish, where they go to the point of pointing that out at the Passover Seder, which is another interesting thing that they feature a Passover Seder at the film. But, you know, this this film also is like very Jewish in its comedy. Like, I feel like there's like little moments within this very tense film. And uh, I'd like to play a clip for you now. Uh, basically, the setting is that Howard has lent this gem to Kevin Garnett as a way to get him good luck during a game. and one of Howard's co-workers, Damani, is tasked with bringing the gem back, but he is not very reliable throughout the film. He doesn't answer his phone. He doesn't answer his text, except when it suits him. And so now they're in Philly for a practice. Uh, they've driven all the way to Philly. Who's that? Is that KG? Tell them we're here. We're coming in. Yo, you got to calm your happy ass down. Are we going inside the facility or are we going to meet him out here? Just chill the fuck out. Bro. I hope we see Rhonda in there. I'd love to tell him thank no. you for dropping all Man, those dimes. No, that's not. They busy. And what the fuck is it with you Jewish niggas in basketball anyway? Huh? I'll have you know, the first two points scored in the NBA was a Jew. Yeah, yeah. What, Fred Flintstein? No. Ozzy Shackman, 1946, when I was watching this movie this time and I was certainly keeping, you know, a score of just sort of like how Jewish it is, you know, in its content, because, you know, we spoke about the Safdie brothers, that they're Jewish, Adam Sandler's Jewish. There's a sort of a Jewish sensibility in terms of like, you know, the, or the themes of suffering. And, you know, you can definitely read Jewishness into there from a sort of thematic and external level, but within the movie itself, like there is so much Jewish content, you know, more so than I remembered watching the first time. I remembered this was like, on the short list of, I don't remember if it was nominated, but it definitely was considered, you know, one of the Oscar, like Oscar best films of, of the year it came out. And I didn't remember just how Jewish it was. And in some senses, you know, in a very obvious way, you know, characters calling each other Jews in, in the scene you just played, you know, we have, we have Damani character asking, you know, what is it about you Jews that you guys love basketball so much? And that's, you know, everyone watching that recognizes we're talking about Jews here, but 
there are so many lines in the movie that are just kind of like you were saying, if you know, you know, you blink, you missed it. If you don't know what you're looking for, you won't hear it. That I was just like, these are like deep cut Jewish ideas that not everyone probably is aware of. You know, one that comes to mind now and one that I actually read the Safdie brothers were very keen on including in the film was, you know, there's a scene where um, Howard's, Howard's girlfriend, Jules, shows, a, shows him a tattoo that she got of his name. And when he sees it, his, his first reaction is, oh, now we can't get buried together, which I can imagine if you don't have a, you know, a contextual understanding of, you know, the concept of Jews aren't supposed to be buried in a cemetery if they get a tattoo, you know, you're not supposed to be buried in a Jewish ta- cemetery if you have a tattoo on your body. Right. You know, that was something that instantly I recognized, you know, what the pain that Howard's character was feeling when he said that line. But it was just the kind of thing that I just... You can imagine a lot of people didn't understand what was going on there, you know, could appreciate the humor in the scene. But there is like there are real Jewish deep cuts in this film that, you know, you don't really see in a mainstream movie so often. Yeah. And his reaction wasn't quite like shock or anything. It was more just like, oh, God, what did you do? (laughs) Yeah, Um, exactly. Yeah, I got another another, uh, example of that. Right. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Howard, I, I'm, uh, what do I got? Uh, Look at this shit, man. And... Bitch-ass motherfucker. You're in that goddamn phone call, nigga. You said it's good? Yeah, I said you're all Oh, clean. good, good. Thank you, that's a relief. You ain't fucking listening to me, man. My father fucking died from it, so of course. I know, I know. Jews and colon cancer. What is that? I thought we would have chosen people. Yeah, one thing when watching this stuff, you know, with that watching this scene we just played is like, one thing I noticed about Howard is like with eye contact, he doesn't do it very much, right? So he's on the phone in the beginning. His colleague, Yossi, resigns or quits after eight years of being there. He's talking to him. He's pouring his heart out. At some point, I think Kevin Garnett's security guards had roughed him up and he just didn't want to be part of the, you know, the business anymore. He doesn't look. He's totally just on the phone in his own world, totally distracted, multitasking, whatever. And similarly, when Damani is is confronting him in the office about things, he's not making eye contact, totally just in the zone, on the phone, multitasking, doing something else. I think I think what you're saying is so true. I think it's so telling of his character that he's never able to kind of be present, you know, with anyone else or even with himself in a moment. He's always looking ahead. He's always looking for the next thing. You know, it's he gets the money. He he wins one hundred thousand dollars. He's investing it. You know, he's putting it down on another on another gamble to turn it into a million dollars. And you know, he te- he finally gets his hands on like a loan from someone and he takes that money and pawns it for something else. And it's just like, there, there's no sense of being, you know, present in any given scene. It's just, he's always, you know, focusing on everyone else. And we see it through all the other characters in his life. They, they know they never get his attempt, attention. You know, you were talking about Yessi and the way that he quit and Armani like knows he doesn't, he's not even looking at him. And, you know, he's like talking to, you know, his ex-wife throughout the film. And every time that she says something to him, he's always just like clearly of another mind. He never understands how she's actually feeling. However, when Howard needs something from her, this is how he talks to her. Yeah, I know. I know I fucked up. I know. Yeah, you fucked up. You are a fuck up. And I'm not having this conversation. Please stop. Just stop for one second and just look at me. Look in my eyes and they'll tell you what I'm feeling. Please, please. (sighs) (laughs) What are you thinking? (laughs) What? Tell me, tell me. I (laughs) I know. What? Okay. 
Yeah. So Howard tries to be all serious with Dina and she just laughs him off and he makes this like dumb face to her. That That's really cool. The way you were talking about how he's his inability to like make eye contact with anyone and his plea to her is not, he doesn't even say anything. He just says, look in my face. I want to look in your eyes. Which <laughs> I think for us, it, it does feel a little bit vulnerable from him. You know, we know that him, that's yes, not something yes. that he always does. And yeah. to her, it's just like, why should this be a big deal? Like you're barely meeting the minimum. I want you to do so much more barely. than just yes. like finally give me eye contact. But you know, that, that's a really interesting observation. Yeah. To him, it's like, Oh, this is a big deal. And he's got this like dopey face. Um, and it really doesn't, uh, doesn't really cut it for her. She's, she's nope. not into it. She's done with him. This is at a point in the film later on where him and Jules have had a falling out. And at that point they're on the rock. So he's at a Passover Seder at Dina's house and Dina's dad is Judd Hirsch. And I want to, I want to take a minute to talk about this uh, Passover Seder because sure. this is, you know, obviously the way I was saying, there are certain things you just don't see in mainstream films. I mean, to have mm-hmm. an entire scene devoted to the Passover Seder and, you know, for even characters throughout the film to refer to it as, you know, Pesach is coming up, you know, like the, the Hebrew version of it where people sure. are really, you know, taking this seriously, I, I think it was striking to, you know, watch that all play out in the film. And I think it has, you know, both just grounds this in a very Jewish world. You know, this is like authentically Jewish to a certain extent. And uh, I wanted to hear your thoughts on how you think some of the themes, you know, of Passover. And maybe this is where we can get we can have our little, you know, big stretch ideas that we always oh, like sure, to throw in sure. here. And uh, just see how that, because I had some thoughts about how this sort of connects to him as a character. So I wanted to hear first how Passover connects that. to this. How Passover, how the Seder, mm-hmm. exactly. Well, how I mean, I, the beginning him. reminded me of like Egypt, you know, in a sense that like you have people who are sort of slaves to the mind at the beginning, like the Jews were slaves in Egypt kind of thing. Um, and then also just, you know, this whole ability for someone like Howard to pay a certain amount of money uh, for this gem from these Ethiopian people and then sell it to way for way more money and, and, you know, the idea of like rich and poor, that's the, that's the thing. Um, you know, a lot of people wish him happy Passover, things like that. In terms of like a direct connection to Passover, I feel like it, we're getting into a Laffy Taffy stretch territory a little bit. Always. Uh, always. You know, I'm more on the, like the stereotype piece, which we can talk about in a minute, but I'm curious to hear about how you thought it did or did not connect to Passover. Yeah. Other than being like explicitly at a Passover Seder so exactly. there's a connection, you know. Exactly. I mean, I think what you were just saying about that dynamic of sort of like slavery to freedom, you know, and I, I think that's actually very present. You know, that's a big theme of the Passover Seder is, you know, documenting the sort of ancient Jews, how they went from being, you know, slaves to getting their absolute freedom. And I think, you know, that reminded me of the conversation that they uh that Howard has at some point about you know, the Opal, I think Kevin Garnett is pressing him about how much he charged mm, from yes. the Ethiopian miners. And he was just like, no, there's like a big deal for them. And it kind of frames there's sort of two Jews on the side of this, you know, exchange of this sort of like much poorer, you know, group of individuals selling to someone who's very wealthy on the other side. And it's a little bit of an inverted, you know, Passover dynamic to see them on both sides. But uh, it, it also, it had me thinking a little bit, I was reading about how, you know, a lot of Jews sort of, wah, like weren't able to cultivate, you know, wealth for many years, obviously they mm-hmm. were considered a lower part of society. And we're talking, you know, for years through the, you know, through se- like centuries ago, you know, when Christian dominated, you know, Western, Western countries. And I think I was reading the Safety brothers were talking about how Jews have used sort of like wealth and, you know, owning things as a sort of marker of like their own individuality and of just like, 
as a sort of response to always feeling, you know, enslaved. It's like now, you know, we're free. Now we can have a lot of possessions. And that's kind of what, you know, draws him, the ability to have money, the ability to spend money. So right. I think in light of what you were saying, that that definitely to me felt like something that's going on here with this sort of Passover, you know, this dynamic of, you know, poverty to, you know, wealth, which I think Howard is on the verge of the entire film. At one moment, he's up $100,000. The next moment, he's in debt to, you know, a ton of people, you know, however many thousand dollars. So, right. you know, we're definitely playing with that balance. Yeah. And if and it, it's interesting because we run into more of these colorful New York characters who work in the Diamond District who know Howard. And we find out, oh, no, it's not that he just owes Arno $100,000. He also owns this weirdo down the street. He owes him money. And then the other one pawned the ring and he still owes him this and that. So he basically owes money to everyone around town. And, you know, he even loops in his father-in-law to bid on the black opal against Kevin Garnett. Right. And so he gets him in the hole, 200 grand nearly. Um, yeah, it's 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 something else. And I feel like it's not even that Howard's looking for freedom, right? He, because at a certain point in the film, he's up and he has a whole bunch of money in his hand. And the smart person would be like, oh, I owe someone this much money. Let me pay that off, pay this off, pay that off. He just turns around and spends it somewhere else. He really does have a gambling addiction. He's, he's enslaved to it. He's, he's a slave to the money and he doesn't want to be free. I think he wants to just continue this sort of like hustle and the, just staying on the treadmill and just keeping, keeping the, the vibe going of just like constantly sort of looking he's for always, the next fix. And, and yeah. yeah. And like, literally there's a couple of times where he's like, you know, he says, you know, when he's like watching the, the game on the phone, he's like, Oh, he's like, has a physical sexual reaction from the, the fact oh. that he's like several times he's just there's a moment he, i was gonna say there's a moment when he's in the back of a car i think yeah and yeah. like he sees that he's winning and it, it does seem like he's orgasming like he's just yeah. having this you know sort of sexual moment of just yes. you know excitement and yeah. I, I definitely i definitely agree with you that's why i think that's his most dominant relationship you know he can't give enough to any of his other relationships with his wife and his girlfriend yeah. but you know that's sort of where it's all focused and he does worship Kevin Garnett. I mean, he's willing to part with this stone. He's willing to like polish his earrings for free. And I'm not sure like what that's all about. Like maybe because he worships sports so much that like a superhero like Kevin Garnett from his, from this team that he likes or that he follows, you know, the fact that he comes in, he's like a larger than life character. Like physically he's like maybe seven feet tall or something like that. It next to little short Howard. But, um, yeah, it's just very, it's very interesting the way that he behaves where he's willing to do anything for Kevin Garnett to the point where he's like, oh yeah, I would give it to you, but I have it on auction. It's like, you're really going to totally. give this stone to someone that you spent a hundred thousand dollars on? Like, And part of that is just his recklessness, but a hundred percent, I think a lot of it is like the thrill of it and his attraction to basketball. And what's so interesting is that you reminded me, I was reading in an interview about how the Safties, I think they originally had wanted to make this movie a couple years earlier. And when mm -hmm. they did, they were hoping to star Amari Stoudemire in it. He was, you know, they're huge Knicks fans. He was on the Knicks at the time, but also he's famously a player who was Jewish or is Jewish. And I think after his basketball career has leaned more into his, you know, religiousness into his Judaism and mm -hmm. he moved to Israel for a long time afterwards. And I think they said that when they originally had what they had in mind for the character was there to be this sort of bond between, you know, this is a basketball player that's also Jewish. I have this, you know, real connection with him. And, right. you know, Howard, a character who is like, 
so seemingly, I think, proud of his Jewishness and sure. like leans into his identity and what that means and all the stereotypes associated with that. So I can imagine some of that affection, you know, would have been a little bit more obviously placed had it been mm. Amari Stoudemire in the lead yeah. role instead of Kevin Garnett. I want to play that scene you were just mentioning about Kevin Garnett and um, Howard sitting down to chat. You gave some niggas from Ethiopia a hundred grand for something you thought was worth a million dollars. You don't see nothing wrong with that, Howard? Ethiopian miners, you know what these fucking guys make? A hundred grand's 50 lifetimes for these fucking guys. A million dollars is more, is my point. You well, understand? If you want to win by one point or fucking 30 points, KG. Right? I see you out there when the fucking stadium's all booing you. You're 30 up, you're still going full tilt. Let's see what Vegas, what has Vegas got you guys at tonight? Take a look. Let's see. And at this point in the film, Howard places his sort of uh, final bet of his life. <laughs> yeah, Spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> this is the famous six-way parlay that we'll talk about. Um, <laughs> but essentially, he's literally talking about something with Kevin Garnett, sitting him down in his office about the gym. And then all of a sudden, it quickly pivots to another bet, just so quickly. Um, I do think one thing that we have not mentioned, which I thought was probably one of the more anxiety inducing scenes is when Howard goes to see his daughter's play. And um, at this point he's being harassed pretty aggressively by Arno and his thugs. And he's sitting down completely distracted, texting Damani has run off. We don't know where the gem is. We don't know where Damani is. And Howard is just totally fixated on where the gem is because he has to take it to an auction house because he's hoping to sell it in an auction and make a lot of money. Again, a gamble. And always, I thought it was interesting that his daughter's in a play, which I was not able to figure out what the play is, but her role in the film is that she's yes. spewing coins out of her mouth. Like just, she's, yeah. She's signed right. I remember her character is sort of cursed with the blessing of getting to, you know, anytime she speaks, gold is spewed out of her mouth. And it's a very subtle moment, but I, I know we both picked up on it where, you know, Howard sort of rolls his eyes. He makes a face like, okay. And it's something that, you know, I'm sure a lot of people picked up on too, but he's clearly, you know, disturbed by the fact that, you know, his Jewish family and this Jewish, you know, his Jewish daughter is being cast in this role of someone who is spewing literal money out of her mouth. Yeah, it was kind of an interesting choice. And later on, Howard realizes that Arno's thugs are sitting behind him in the auditorium, rather. And he talks to them outside. He's got the balls to summon these very two beefy guys into the hallway of his daughter's school. He bites one of them. He pushes the other one. He does not back down at all. And it's just a very interesting choice. You know, Howard doesn't seem to back down from anything, it seems. and you know, they chase him, they beat him. He gets in a car with Arno. Arno forces his thugs to strip him of his clothes, his watches, his bracelets, throw him in his trunk completely naked, and they leave his phone. To, so he ends up calling his wife, who's sitting in the auditorium watching her daughter. And Dina has to then rescue Howard completely naked in his Mercedes. So yeah, that's a fun there, scene. <laughs> I was about to say, there's certainly a lot going on in that scene. Yes. I mean, speaking to what you're talking about when he bit, you know, the other character, I, oh, I yeah. think I definitely took note of the fact that the person he bit says, you know, he yells to his partner, he says, the Jew bit me, you know, which is one of those uh, very explicit characterizations of him as this, you know, sort of Jew character and, you know, some clear, I mean, like that was just a clearly 
in your face kind of a representation of that. But um, what's, what's interesting is that, you know, and I know I've been talking about, you know, the Safety brothers in this interview, I read one interview, but there was just a lot of gems in there, but, um, pun intended, but <laughs> they talked about how, they talked about how like they just had seen so many characters, you know, a lot of times when we think of that sort of Jewish character, that Jewish comedian, you know, the sensibility we think of is this very meek sort of, you know, you know, small scrawny character. And they said that they were excited to create, you know, Howard as someone who was just like, he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't take a punch without punching back. And he was very much going to fight for himself. And even when he was outnumbered and even when it was ill-advised, he was, he was going to be like a strong, you know, proud of his Jewishness and not sort of meek. And I think you see that in full display there when he bites the character and says, I think he even says to them, like, you guys want to go outside? And then one of them is like, are you sure that's a good idea? Yeah. Like, that is not good for you. And he's just like, let's do it. Because he's like, yeah. he's not going to let them come to his turf and, you know, stand down. So I certainly think we're seeing glimpses of the, you know, strong Jewish character there. Towards the end, he goes to the auction house. He finally gets his black opal stone back from Kevin Garnett. He gets the stone back from Damani right in the nick of time. He he tries to get it appraised and he thinks it's going to sell for at least a million dollars. They end up appraising it for far less than that, close to $200,000 maximum. His father-in-law buys the gem for about $190,000 and then Arno's goons really kick the shit out of him. They break his nose. They like hit him in his voice box or whatever. And he's just limping home with this gem that he's taken down from his father-in-law. He's walking home and here he is with Jules in his shop, kind of at his wits end. Hey, sorry to bother you. What is it? I just wanted to see how the auction went. Terrible. I don't, I, I don't want to talk about it. Okay, well, Damien and Joseph brought this amazing sweatsuit that I think would look so nice on you. Do you want to see it? Just leave me alone, please. Come on, Howard. Don't, don't look at me. Oh my God, Howard. Don't look at me. What the fuck happened to you? Don't look at me, please. <laughs> I don't know what I'm thinking. I don't know what everybody's doing. Not ever going right. I know, I know. I'm so sad. I'm so fucked up. I'm so fucked up. Yeah, I'm really upset too. <laughs> I'm sorry if this has anything to do with me, but I swear I really didn't do anything. I wish you were nicer to me though. It was not nice what you did to me. I try, but it's really hard. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't have any place to go. I don't have anywhere to get better. But you do. Like, really, Howard. You're my home. You could come to me. I, don't, I can't figure it out. I can't figure out what I'm supposed to do. Everything I do is not going right. Everything I do is not going right. I don't know what to do. I really don't. I don't want any more yeah. of this shit. I really don't. I gotta figure yeah. this out. I gotta figure this out. I really do. <laughs> Howard is just like breaking down in front of Jules and really showing his true colors. So I thought that was kind exactly. of interesting. Yeah. Where finally all the weight of the world has finally crushed Howard and he's just falling apart. Well, there's one thing I think is so great about that scene is because the heel turn comes very suddenly because I think he gets a call, you know, from Kevin Garnett's agent or his representative and who says that he's actually interested in still buying the Opal, even though, you know, they sort of outbid him accidentally at the at the auction. 
And it's just the way that his entire disposition changes immediately. And he doesn't wallow in this. And he's just, like we said before, just sort of looking ahead at the next prize and he has his way out and he's just back on the move. It's like in a movie that is just so, you know, action packed and sort of fast paced. It, it lets you slow down for a couple of minutes, but as soon as there's an out, it's going to take it. And, you know, you're right back in the roller coaster again. Yeah, it is. It is very interesting how his body language and his confidence and everything in pursuit of the next fix, he's like an addict, you know? So absolutely. When, when the next thing comes up. And so what happens is, you know, Kevin Garnett buys the stone. He comes to pick it up. They have that chat that we played earlier. Howard places this insane six-way parlay. I don't even know what that means, but essentially he places this very, very, very hard to pull off bet. A lot of things have to happen. Including the Celtics winning the tip and Kevin Garnett getting a certain amount of points uh, throughout the game. And so what happens is Arno's gangs come for a final showdown and he talks to them and he locks them in his double door entrance thing, which is like a recurring gag throughout the movie. Just another opportunity to inject some like low hanging fruit humor. You know, people yanking on the door, trying to buzz. It's not working. Da, da, da. Yep. And they eventually put like a file in there, some sort of rasp to kind of like keep the door open. And so he's got the thugs in that room. They are not looking very happy, but he's watching the Celtics game where he's placed this insane bet. He sends Julia off in a helicopter to the Mohegan Sun Casino in Connecticut. She places the sixth way parlay bet with, what is it? $175,000, something like that. I, I know it'll net them $1.2 million. Yeah. If it yeah. That's the big, that's the big win. Yeah. And she, she meets this colorful character named Wayne Diamond, or that's the actor, but his name is Wayne. And he seems like a harmless guy, mostly, but a colorful Jewish character. So he kind of, helps Julia out and he keeps her company while Arno's thugs make it up to the casino. And then he ends the end of the film as a kind of like nice, a nice, he does a little mitzvah, you know, he doesn't have to do anything for, you know, there's no reason for him. He says, I have more money than I know what to do with. So I come here all the time. Jules shares a helicopter with Wayne on the way up to Connecticut. So that's how they initially met. And he's right. just this real old pervy kind of guy, <laughs> but sort of harmless, the kind of old man, flirtation i should say one of these right. old you know wayne does these like sort of old man flirtations that are not acceptable in today's in, in 2020 or 2019 yeah right i guess the film right. takes place in 2012 i believe i think so anyway not appropriate at any point but at the end of the movie he ends up carrying her 1.2 million dollars out and uh gives it to jules in the limousine yeah you want to you want to close it out and tell us how the film ends? Yes. Yeah, so um, the the film sort of tricks you into believing that this is all going to work out for Howard. He kind of gets this big win. He wins one point two million dollars, which should be more than enough to pay off all his debts and you know retire happily. And of course, we we know that if given the chance, he probably would have re you know gambled that someplace else. But um, but at least there's going to be a moment where you know hopefully it's enough money that this could actually keep him afloat and sort of in his euphoria, he unlocks the door and like lets the thugs come into the room with him to kind of say, you know, I got your money. This is what you always wanted. But, you know, as we've been saying throughout, he kind of, he never really looks at people, you know, he never understands what they're going through. He doesn't recognize the fact that, you know, the thugs sitting in that room weren't just waiting to see if he won the money and that they would get paid. Like they were visibly annoyed. They were trapped in this 
you know, confined space. It was clearly very hot in there, cut off from the air conditioning. They're all kind of like sweating down. And one of the particularly aggressive thugs who we have, we know from earlier actually has a gun, you know, on him because he had pulled it out. As soon as Howard opens the door to let him out, he kind of raises his arm and shoots him in the face, kind of instantly. Right yeah. You know, exactly. Right, right under the eye. And I think Howard doesn't even have a moment to react because he's kind of already dead right away. And, you know, us along with some of the other thugs that are with him are kind of stuck in this place of shock that escalated beyond where anyone thought it might. And in the sort of panic, you know, that lead thug kind of kills one of the other ones that's with him and then, you know, cleans out the shop, basically steals what he can and, you know, makes his getaway. And uh, the movie kind of ends. We see Howard alone on the floor and much in the same way the movie began with us pulling out of his colon, we kind of re-enter into his body through the, through the gunshot wound, you know, in his face and kind of find ourselves in the middle of the opal, it seems, yes. you know, at some point in a very uh, poetic finish. Yeah, film. we're kind of right back where we started and, you know, I wonder what that means, you know, to kind of end where we started in terms of things are certainly different than when we first came out of Howard's colon, so to speak. You know, we found Howard at his worst, you know, at the beginning, but then now he's dead. So in a sense, maybe he's better off, like he's away, he's at peace and Jules has all this money. What Jules is going to do with the money? I don't know. Like the thug, I think his name is Phil. He killed yes. Arno as well in the, in a haste. Um, who's I thought was his boss. So that's kind of a weird choice. Um, but then nothing really seems to happen. And they just, like you said, they start looting the place. So, you know, what happens with all that money? What happens with Jules? We'll never know. As we kind of come around to the end of the film, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. And we're back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are discussing Uncut Gems, the Safdie Brothers 2019 film starring Adam Sandler. And uh, so now that we just talked about a lot of things, let's talk about how we felt about it. We'll rate it on one to five Jewish stars uh, in terms of themes, in terms of content, in terms of cast of characters, both in front of the camera and behind the camera, and then just give an overall rating. So do you want to kick it off, Ari? Sure. I'll start us off, you know, the kind of the most, the least controversial, the most obvious one, you know, how Jewish was this film in terms of its construction, you know, behind the camera in front of it. And uh, I would say that this is actually pretty high up, you know, for a film that, you know, as we went through, doesn't have many Jewish, you know, characters involved, Jewish actors involved. I mean, at its lead is Adam Sandler, who is, mm -hmm. you know, a very, you know, not only is he Jewish, I would say he's, you know, of the sort of mainstream comedic and otherwise actors. He is sort of visibly, you know, Jewish and not in an, I mean, aesthetic sense. I mean, in the sense that, you know, he's famous for his Hanukkah song that he's recorded. And that's kind of become a part of his, you know, identity. His brand has been this sort of Jewish idea. So I think, you know, even in, you know, other of his films that might not be as explicitly Jewish, they're always, he is the kind of character, the kind of actor that brings with him a bit of a Jewish sensibility. So I think in that sense, I would definitely give it marks for being, you know, Jewish. And then, as we mentioned, you know, the Safdie brothers are this pair of, you know, Sephardic brothers. I think they grew up in, in New York and, you know, they clearly, you know, wear that with them. I'm not sure how present it is in all of their films. I haven't seen most of their other films, but, you know, I've read in interviews and you could just get a sense this was coming from a place of personal experience. We want to tell this Jewish story. Uh, they, I actually saw that they, based the character of Howard off of the, a boss that their father had when he was working, you know, as a Jew in the Diamond District, you know, however many years ago. And he actually had a boss named Howard. And this kind of was very close to home in that sense of being part of this, you know, Diamond District, Jew, very Jewish world. So 
I'd say between the Safdie brothers and Adam Sandler, you know, even to the exclusion of most other people in the film that might not necessarily Jewish, I think because they're the center of this film, that carries a lot of Jewishness with it. And I think I'm going to give it four out of five stars of David for my uh, how Jewish is the, you know, context, the, uh, the creation of the film. How about you? Yeah, I mean... I think the Safdie brothers are Jewish. They're Adam Sandler, as you mentioned. I would probably, you know, besides Adam Sandler, the cast and crew, I would probably give it like a three and a half. I mean, you know, he he's certainly a, a Jewish presence in the film. And we'll get into this more in the thematic side. But as far as the Safdies being Jewish, that gives it a probably two and a half. Him being in the film, Sandler, give me another star. I would say if it was like an all Jewish cast, they might go closer to five stars, but there's a very us and them kind of thing where like there are the Jews of the diamond district. And then there are those who are the others, whether it's uh, Kevin Garnett or Damani or Arno, or there's just an othering and Jules as well. Like very clearly, you know, you know, who's who, but it's not an all Jewish cast. So I'll, I'll probably go like three and a half stars. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, that's fair. You know, similar to my pick, but, uh, I get why you went a little bit less Jewish than I thought it was. Um, I want to, I want to ask you now to start us off on the next one. I want to save themes for last. I, okay. I want to save themes actually, because I think sure. that's where we'll have an interesting discussion about how thematically Jewish this film is, but sure. just in terms of the plot. And I think you could go both ways on this, but would you say, you know, this, like the plot of this film made it a very Jewish film? I'm going to have to save my stars for the theme. Um, I mean, I feel like the plot of the film, you know, the setting is Jewish. The character is Jewish, but it's not really, no. I mean, it's, it's, it's a biblical tale in some regard, but we'll get into that in theme. I would say, exactly. I, don't, I don't think it's a very highly Jewish film in that regard. You know, it, it has an homage to a Seder and it has other things here and there, but the plot itself is not strictly Jewish. I'd maybe give it like a star and a half or something like that. Wow. Yeah. You know what? I went, uh, I went back and forth on this one. I, I had some interesting thoughts about, you know, how Jewish it is. Cause on one end, I agree with you, you know, the story, the kind of the, the overarching, you know, to summarize the story about a gambler who, you know, throws away his money is trying to win big on this big thing. Like I think it from a, you know, from a removed perspective, it doesn't necessarily feel like a Jewish story. You know, this isn't something that's reminds me of any of the, you know, sort of Jewish parables, you know, we've learned growing up or any of the biblical stories. This feels like its own story, but at like, you know, as, as much as I'm tempted to give it, you know, a very low ranking here, I haven't seen a movie that has this much Jewishness in it, even if it is like less the plot and more the characters, you know, and just how so identifiably Jewish Howard is. And just the fact that they have, you know, this Passover Seder, you know, as this you know, central component of a film, like that is just so true to, you know, a Jewish experience that I just have never seen like this in a film. And the amount of times that I had this sort of running list of, you know, where something Jewish is referenced or where some characters referred to as a Jew or where, you know, characters in the Diamond District absentmindedly, you know, say things to each other, you know, Happy Pesach or something Jewish like that, to me just felt like, if I'm not going to give a high ranking to this film, you know, I don't know what's going to cut it because that really felt so Jewish to me. So sure. I'm not going to go all the way up to five, but I think maybe three and a half out of okay. five you know, stars of David for, uh, you know, how Jewish is the actual plot of this film. I might push back and say that you like Peter Parker have a, uh, spidey sense for Jew Jewish things and like the average non-Jewish viewer or 
you know, a viewer who may not be as well-versed in things may just think that that's a meal where they like read from a book. I don't know. These are throwaway lines. How was your Pesach or have a good Pesach? You know, like, I don't know. If Howard was a rabbi and it was like the jazz singer, which we may cover at some point, where like he's like a cantor's son and he has to like either play piano or be the can like that's a very Jewish movie in terms of plot because its center focus is all about Judaism in the shul context and whatever. You didn't think we'd go to jazz singer today, huh? But I mean, this is like this is just like a jeweler who runs through a string of bad luck and i don't see what is jewish about the plot now theme which we can get to in a second i would say is way more jewish but i want to talk to you about what you thought about the theme in terms of uh one to five you know stars of david thematically how jewish did you feel this film was sure yeah i mean first of all just to what you were saying before honestly i'll take criticism that's a fair point in terms of gauging you know how much did i pick up on versus how much did others and I almost would say that, maybe to use what you you know were throwing against me to strengthen my point, I think more so than a much more subtly Jewish film, I think anyone watching this would say there's there's something going on with Jews. You know, there's a mm. lot of yarmulkes flying around. There's a lot of you know people talking a certain way, like we're having this Passover Seder. And I I agree with you. That's why this movie is so difficult because somehow it is so grounded in a Jewish world, but also doesn't actually you know the Jewishness isn't necessarily driving the plot, which is right. just such a weird balance. So, you know, to, for the sake of, uh, you know, of agreeing with you a little bit here, I'll, I'll lower my ranking down from 3.5 to three and a, to just three whole, you know, <laughs> stars of I David. Mean, that's my, that's my gift offering to you. I hope I'll, that's, yeah. I hope it's enough. Yeah, sure. I mean, I wasn't asking for your half star, but I'll take it. I really appreciate it. <laughs> it's it's my gift to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, it's like one of these like Marvel Easter eggs where like if you've read the comics before, then, you know, that character in the background is a secret character from Guardians of the Galaxy, whatever. It's like one of these things where it's not central to the story that it has to be a satyr and you have to know what that is or you have to know what Pesach is or whatever. So that's what I'm saying. But I certainly will... Yeah. Take your half star and I'll put it in my pocket and I'll save it for later. Because you know, we, yeah. But thematically, um, how do you think this film stacks up um, one to five stars of David? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the big question. That's why I was excited to do this category last. And I think similar to what we were saying about the plot sort of not being driven by you know Jewish ideas, I was thinking of that thematically. And I think probably before we had this discussion, I would have given it a very, very low score because I really do think that, you know, the themes of this, of this movie about, you know, sort of gambling and being into too far, you know, over your head and not being present in the moment and, you know, always just sort of looking for the next fix and risk, risking everything. There is nothing that feels so inherently Jewish to me about that. But I don't know. I think our conversation about what we were talking about, the sort of Passover at the center of this and that dynamic of, you know, poverty to riches and, you know, the way that plays into the biblical themes of, you know, Passover, but even beyond that to just, you know, I guess I did like themes of sort of generational, you know, poverty that Jews have experienced and sort of coming to, you know, the United States and kind of cultivating, you know, wealth for the first time, including in the diamond district, you know, which is obviously such a big part of this film. I, I do, I am starting to see a little bit more resonance there. I think, the movie's resolutions don't necessarily support those themes. You know, it doesn't really come in, turn into this Jewish thematic lesson. You know, here's why you should, you know, embrace, you know, your Jewishness and God and save the day. It doesn't resolve as cleanly as I would like, but I, I think it's more Jewish than I expected. So still not going to give it such a strong one. I think I'm going to go 
two and a half stars to David. So a little bit of like in the midpoint and that's up from my, you know, one star that I was thinking originally when we were discussing this, but, but yeah, I think it's somewhere in the middle around two and a half. How about did you? you? What, uh, did you want your half star back in case for later? Save it. For um, later? You know what? Save it for another episode. There's going to oh, be yeah. another episode down the line where maybe we're split on a movie sure, and I'm going to sure, need sure. that advantage, you know, to yeah. stop me. So just remember that. I mean, for me, this thematically, like the more that we're talking about it and, and chopping it up, you know, the, the, it's just a very biblical film to me, right? Like this, all this shitty stuff happens to this character. He's not very uh, likable as a character and who ends up winning in the end, right? Like in a lot of biblical tales, the Jews don't win, right? The Nanjis win. And so who wins? Jules gets her money. She's very not Jewish in the film. Like they make a point of pointing that out. Arno, yeah. who's like, you know, technically he's in the family sort of, and he doesn't win. So Arno's thugs get the money. Kevin Garnett gets the stone. So really money. like the Jews don't win in this film um, at all. Um, and that's very biblical, but like the, yeah, the pursuit of wealth, it's just a lot to tackle here. I feel like, um, and then also the humor. I feel like that humor element is a very Jewish thing. The way that the jokes are told, they're not these like big, broad jokes. They kind of like subtle. Yeah. And a lot about it, I think, you know, haggling, there's a lot of stereotypes around. And I think the Safties have kind of like leaned into the stereotypes a bit. So I'm going to go like four, four and a half stars, something like that. Wow. Four and a half. Maybe I'll go four. I'll, I'll say that like a half, <laughs> say a half star, you know? Exactly. But, uh, yeah. I do feel like it's a pretty thematically Jewish film plot wise, not as much, but yeah. Do you want to go ahead and we'll talk about our overall rating of the film? How much we enjoyed yeah. it? Sure. Yeah, we can definitely do that. I mean, you know, one way we can kind of gauge our overall Jewishness ranking of the film is just by fine calculating the average of, you know, our scores. But I think I threw too many halves in there that uh, I'm not going to spend some time now trying to figure that all out. But I definitely think, you know, overall, just sort of watching it. And I'm just trying to gauge now, you know, how much did I feel like this was a Jewish movie versus how much was this another movie that, like we were talking about before, happened to have some throwaway, you know, gags being Jewish. And it certainly changed between my two viewings. I think the first time I watched it, I remembered that he was a Jewish character. I remembered, you know, maybe seeing a mezuzah or a yarmulke, you know, every once in a while. But like what, what stayed with me from that first viewing of the film was just, you know, the devastation at the end, the kind of self-destruction of the character, which just didn't feel to me as sort of resonantly Jewish. But certainly watching it through this lens and through the lens of recording it for, for this podcast, it just felt like, I, I I really, I couldn't get it out of my head. I was like, I haven't seen a movie this sort of explicitly Jewish, you know, that is dealing with Jewish characters and not, you know, dumbing them down. I, I don't want to give, I'll give a minor spoiler for uh, Licorice Pizza, the Paul Thomas Anderson movie that came out a couple of days ago. Although I can hold it to myself if you don't want me to spoil it. I mean, it's just, it is so minor. It was just a moment where they had, you know, Jewish characters in the film. And there's this kind of thing where it's like, you see it in a lot of Jewish films or films that are trying to present Jews where they'll sing, you know, like the Friday night kiddish song and like some tune. And in this case, it was, they use the Hanukkah tune, you know, the Hanukkah candle lighting tune for like the Shabbos one. And it just uh, felt wrong. It felt yeah. like they were going with the most cinematic version of a Jewish oh, table. Sure. And what was so striking about watching Uncut Gems, you know, especially after seeing that was it didn't feel like this movie was trying to explain it. You know, they weren't trying to dumb it down and make it more, right. you know, accessible or, 
you know, cinematic. It was just like these characters were just Jewish and they were doing, you know, the Seder wasn't like sure. this big event. You know, it was just like, that's what they were doing that night. It happened to be that weekend. And right. I just thought that was, that was really cool. And that was really, you know, very Jewish in a way that I haven't seen so much in a mainstream film. So in terms of this being, you know, a Jewish film, I don't think it's, you know, five stars in the way, you know, something much more explicitly, you know, like a Schindler's List, you know, I'm not spoiling that episode, but in a way that that, ep- that movie might be. Sure. But uh, I'm going to go four stars of David. I'm going to say this actually really was, you know, despite my lower rankings for some of the other categories, this this really was a Jewish film. So I'm going to go four stars. How about you? I, I was just going to rate it kind of on like how much I liked it on a scale of one to five, but I like the that idea works, of like, you know, how Jewish of a film it is. Um, I will say that like, after seeing this film, I went to my cardiologist and he said, don't watch this film for like another two years. Cause like, it's just too much stress on my heart. Agreed. Yeah. Very, very high intensity film, but highly recommended if you haven't seen it, but yeah, I'll probably give it like a three and a half stars in terms of like how Jewish the film is overall, both thematically plot wise and dealing with the cast and crew of the film. So definite watch for me for sure. If you haven't seen it and um, if you have seen it, I would suggest rewatching it after listening to this podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. So thanks for tuning in. Feel free to follow us on Instagram at Jews on film. And, uh, you know, if there's any films that you want to suggest to us that we may not have heard of, please do so. Harry, good to talk to you, man. Great to talk to you as always. I got to tell you a little bit after the podcast about this really, uh, cool six-way parlay that I'm talking, that I'm thinking about betting at the Mohegan Sun. Maybe you could throw in some cash for me. I I think I'm going to stay out of this one, but this is, we're going to hit big Harry. I'm telling you, man. I don't know. Okay. All right, man. Take it easy. You too. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Daniel Zana and Harry Ottensaucer. Daniel Zana edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening.